Welcome to Punk Rockers B-Sides. B-Sides are additional content outside the usual scope of our podcast that we think our listeners will enjoy. Look for them on Sporadic Fridays. Enjoy the B-Side! Well, hello. We are joining you today, and you don't know who we is yet, but you will soon, um, for the purpose of um, a new sort of shorter format, Punk Frockers, that we're calling the B-Sides. And our purpose is to hit topics that we might not necessarily otherwise cover on the main podcast, which is exciting to me. So I'm just going to start by asking uh, my co-host, to introduce themselves. Hello, I am Kelly Hogboom, and my pronouns are they, them, and I live and work here in Aberdeen, Washington as a designer and sewist, and I'm happy to be here. (laughs) I'm really happy to have you here. Yours is an account that I have followed for some time on Instagram because I find a lot of what you create to be so incredibly interesting, and I have I have like a fascination around particularly the chain stitch work that you do just because I look at that and I think my first thought is never me, but my second thought is how do I get all of it? And so so it's always really interesting to watch and I've enjoyed the regular series of lives that you've done around chain stitch, but also around other, other aspects of handcraft, which I've, I've really enjoyed. And as I've followed you, one of the other things that's really stood out for me is how supportive you are of others in the community who are trying to build businesses or followings or practices or whatever you want to define it as. Because I think it's a lot of people in different stages of their creative journey. So it's been it's been really neat to me to watch that happen. Well, yeah, I I appreciate that. And um, I'm actually quite flattered that you love my stuff because you must follow a lot of sewists. And I feel like I'm like in a lull lately, like I'm not producing as much as I have in the past. And I I always worry people get bored with me, which is kind of funny. I I can't imagine that happening, but I, I think that, I think that what you view as a lull probably looks different than what most people view as a lull. It's sort of like for me as a binge sewist, when I have a week where I only make four items, I really feel like I've let the community down <laughs> because, because they're used to seeing more than that come off of my sewing machine. And, and I'll, I'll struggle. God forbid it be a week where I get like two items made. And then I'm like, I don't even, I don't even know if I have value anymore, like, which is who weird. Am I? I do. Yeah. It's really weird. Um, so I can relate, but at the same time, I bet a lull looks different to you than it does to your followers. That That is true. And as you say that, I realize that one of the reasons I've been attracted to your stream is that you are so prolific uh, because I think I relate to that. And like some sewists are, you know, bit, like you say, binge sewists, some, yeah. some go more detail oriented and all those things. But I, I have a heart for the binge sewist because I am one. I am one myself. And I'm not trying to recover. Well, and I try to, the way I view it is there are definitely steps I skip or things where I take shortcuts, but I am also trying for a high quality garment that will last me a long time if I choose to be fascinated by and wish to wear (laughs) for a long time the garment. Mm -hmm. And I focus on details and other things. I just, 
I have more hours in the day than most people, which feels impossible, except for the part where I don't sleep much. So that's part of how I do it. But at the same time, right, I feel um, this is going way off topic here, but I feel pressure and guilt around all the conversations about slow sewing because it feels like a practice it would be painful for me to embrace because because I just I have all those hours in the day I'm not going to sew by literal hand and so I don't know how to fill them <laughs> if I'm not kind of rapid fire producing things it's it leaves a lot of downtime <laughs> <laughs> and so I've not, I've not figured that out, but I, I feel like you found a way mm -hmm. to build the slow component in that, that I either haven't seen yet for myself or I haven't embraced. I'm not sure, but I do feel guilt. I don't know if that helps um, the slow snowing community in any way, but, but I feel <laughs> guilty that I haven't really embraced it because I understand at least some of the purposes. So anyway, just a yeah, no, guilt, guilt has no, yeah. yeah, that's, yeah, well, that that's going to dovetail really well into our topic, because that was kind of how I found my way out of this problem of um, prolific sewing was to start sewing for other people, right? Yeah, and that's, that's really neat, because of course, our, our topic today is going to be, how do you make a decision about whether or not turning a hobby into a business might be right for you? Because it, mm. I would, I would argue it's definitely not right for everybody. There are plenty of people who are like, nope, don't, don't want to do it. Or who have an attitude that I've, I've heard you counter before that if I make my hobby into my business, I will no longer enjoy my hobby, which I think can be true. But I, I imagine a lot of that is mindset more than it is physical action of what you're doing. I think it's capitalism, actually. Like, you should just know I'm going to blame all of our problems on capitalism for this recording, certainly. Maybe no, that's all of them. perfect. Yeah. That includes the patriarchy as well, I hope. Yes. Because oh, yeah. that's White supremacy. Where absolutely. all my blame goes is yeah. just immediately all men. Um, so. well, yeah. yes. <laughs> uh, sorry, the, the three of you that are listening. Um, <laughs> so. Like it's a thorny sure, you're topic. You're the exception, but yes, you're the good really. guys. Um. Yes. <laughs> not giving them a break. I, it's a thorny topic because when I say I professionalized, that is what people say almost reflexively to me. They say I don't want to professionalize. They say a version of I don't want to professionalize. Yeah. So in other words, they already feel a lot of pressure around this topic, and it's a fraught topic because uh, there's a lot that goes into it. You know, um, a lot of you know. People, especially women and girls, um, feel like they're kind of not allowed to have a frivolous hobby. And so when people say you should sell those, they feel this kind of defensiveness, right? So, yep. so it's, it's like an effed up topic from the very beginning. And I think your question about, well, how would you, how would you make a decision that works for you is a really good one because my position is you should definitely not professionalize if it's not for you, right? Because it's hard work for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. And actually, as soon as you mention the pressure that sewists may feel, and I would imagine many handcrafters, but but sewists in particular may feel to professionalize. There's a there's a great account on Instagram called Can You Sew This For Me mm. that focuses on outrageous demands that people make on hobby sewist time regularly. So if you I'm it's happened to me in a grocery store where I'm checking out, someone compliments my dress and I make the terrible error of saying, oh, I make all my clothing, which is immediately 
followed by a half joking, oh, well, could you make me a dress like that? Um, and it's from someone you, you've never met. You, mm-hmm. you barely noticed pushing the cart behind you, right? And now you're in a position where you suddenly feel like you have to engage with them on, on a question. And even once you do, probably as soon as you explain the cost of such a thing, they're going to be dismissive of what they were previously impressed by and oh, compliment yeah. on. And so it gets into a really fraught space quickly, really yes. quickly. Within like <laughs> a third of a second. Yeah, yeah. I have kind of a funny story about this. You, you know, I was wearing one of my coveralls the other day in Safeway and um, I go through the line and the checker says, are you at work? And I said, I said, what? And she kind of gestures. I said, oh, I made this. And I turned around, I pointed at the chain stitch. I said, I made all of this. And she said, um, oh my God, that is amazing. I want one. And I said, thanks. And then she said, what do you do for a living? <laughs> I was like, I said, <laughs> I said, this is what I, this is what I do. And so there's this weird invisibility of garment workers, right? Like mm-hmm. we're used to these prices, $5 for a t-shirt or whatever. Yep. So there's this weird, like hobby sewists, especially women who hobby sew are in this weird twilight zone because on one hand, they're kind of picked on for being like either frivolous or having the privilege to sew. But on the other hand, if they wanted to make a go of it, they would instantly be devalued. Like you just said, one second ago, someone's complimenting your dress. If you, if you say anything at all about being willing to, to sell it for a fair wage, you might get insulted, like right to your face. Someone might say, yep. wow, or yikes. And I, that's what I mean. It's such a fraught topic. Like I talk about this all the time and I still feel like I hardly know how to tackle the topic really. Cause there's a lot going on there. There is. And when my, when my children were young, I had what I think at the time, cause I was a, an at-home mom who was not required to earn a living of any sort. I didn't have to contribute financially to the family, but I was continually trying to find a way to make my handcrafts pay. And the experience of that at, at craft fairs and art shows and things like that was 35 years ago, largely um, demoralizing and insulting mm-hmm. and a, a, a game of pressure to get to get you to reduce pricing on a thing where you're already at the point where you're saying, but but I actually have to cover the materials. I li- literally <laughs> yeah. can't sell it for less than I paid for the constituent parts. Exactly. Even if we ignore that I put some effort in. Yes. And <laughs> yeah. It was it was a really it was a really rough and weird place to be. And I like to think that some things about that space have matured over the years. But but I don't really know because when I attend art events, this is, I, I'm sure it's completely inappropriate on my part, but I'm forever stopping at a booth and, and inquiring because they often don't have the prices posted. I'm just like, how much is the thing? And frequently the answer to that is not the right number. It's way too low. <laughs> and, yeah. and I immediately move into a, oh, oh my gosh, that, that I would happily pay X dollars more for something like that. I am sure this is the effort you put in. I'm amazed by it. And I'm, I'm like, trying to puff them up and make them feel good, and whatever. Yeah. And, and I never know quite what the next step is. Is it, well, that's a $50, whatever. So here's $50. Or is it what a bargain I got or something in between? Anyway, I just, I'm sure many of them are like, Jesus, the lady who was trying to pressure me into, <laughs> into charging more for my goods as if she knows more about my business, which is a fair evaluation. But at the same time, I can promise you that scrunchie shouldn't be $5. Um, you know, 
Yeah, that, you know, I've, I've said it before. I made a couple lives about this on my bespoke Hogaboom account. I, you will never hear me criticize a price point ever too low, too high. Um, now if I get retained by someone who wants suggestions or advice, I will absolutely engage with them on this topic. But like, if I walked up to a booth and saw a $5 thing that really, to really cover, um, you know, cogs and overhead and all of those things, Mm -hmm. like, and the booth fee and all of that should be more than $5. I, I just pay their price. And I say, this is amazing. I ask, you know, are you on Instagram? I I do a lot of that actually. Are you on Instagram or are you on Facebook or how can I support you? Do you have an email list? Because a lot of times those properties are more valuable than the $5 scrunchie is like, if I get on their email list, because then I'm going to see their stuff. If it's a, if it's a digital transaction, I, I tend to tip a lot. Um, Oh, I do tip on digital transactions. I agree. I think that's a really great way to, yeah. Another place you get under, your financial appreciation yeah. for the effort. Yeah. And of course, some artisans are shy about tip. They get nervous. They get like money is quite fraught. You know this <laughs> from your I uh, profession and from your life. But so I, I try to act with sensitivity both ways. And so I don't let myself betray any emotion on hearing a price. So I've learned that. And um, the thing that makes me sad about the $5 scrunchie is I probably won't see that gal next year at the fair. That's what bothers I me. Know. It's, like, it's like, man, if I saw you selling these for 30, I would think, oh man, she might be here next year, you know? And so that's yeah. hard for me. But again, unless I'm being asked, <laughs> I try not to coach unless I'm asked and paid. Um, but yeah, like it's a hard, it's a hard topic. I should do better at that. But to be fair, I will also tell the grocery store clerk, you realize they're paying $4 more an hour down the road. (laughs) You're just getting up in there. I mean, my, my, (laughs) I worry so much about, cause I've watched, well, first off I lived it. I mean, I, I definitely lived um, a, a much less privileged life when my children were younger, but at the same time, I think there are so many people who aren't willing to engage in conversation about money. And yes, I'm absolutely certain I should wait for someone to start with me first, but someone's got to do the opening volley. <laughs> and so, so probably I just need a little bit of duct tape when I'm out and I could just not talk as much, <laughs> but I haven't I been know. very where's good at it yet. I was going to say, where's the fun in that? You're, you've gotten this far. <laughs> You're probably not going to change, but, but you know, like, um, I do think that like little free piece of advice for anyone who is out there with the $5 scrunchie, someone like that, who's worried about it, instead of telling her charge 30, because that's truly when you do the numbers, that's what you've got to charge. I say, Hey, just, just go in every now and then and raise your price 10%, 15%. And then she says, what are my customers saying? I say, just tell them ahead of time. You're going to do it. Tell them I've got a sale until I raise my prices. Thank you very much. You know, Customer handling is tricky. Uh, you you know you've usually um, got your audience to already treat you a certain way, and so when your prices are low, unfortunately, that can work against you. Um, the higher your prices are, unfortunately, the more people treat you with respect. So none of these like pricing pivots and marketing pivots are super easy, but they are possible. And I just want to encourage anyone out there who's got the five dollars scrunchie. It's it's possible to pivot. That's really wonderful. I I I really. I really appreciate that. That seems like great advice that people can use. Um, so you had some bullet points that that seemed like they might be a good way to guide the conversation. So I'd, I'd just like to kind of kind of look at that. We've sort of talked a little bit about capitalization, but the, but the idea of the pressure for the side hustle, um, that's a big one. How do you know whether or not whether or not you're really ready? 
to go mm. and do that. Is that like, cause I could imagine me psyching myself out about it. <laughs> I think if you, my, my criteria for knowing if you might want to professionalize is probably really different than a lot of people's. My criteria is, do you wake up in the morning and you want to go and make, 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 you don't even want to take that shower or brush your teeth. You want to get downstairs in the studio. If that is how you are professionalizing is a way you won't end up squandering your efforts on, on people or situations that aren't very rewarding. I'm not saying you have to do that. I'm saying it's one possible way to have a better experience. And I, the second thing I would say is everyone has different income goals. So, you know, I think it's perfectly viable to have a business that is essentially just paying for the fabrics and the, and the machine. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. And so, and like, meanwhile, I have a, a client and a friend who she's trying to get out of a professional career and become a sewist. So for her, her income goals are much larger. So that's a whole different way we tackle it. But I would say it comes from your drive. If you just can't stop making, I would say you should, might consider professionalizing. That would be the, the thing I would say. Okay. That makes sense. So what stops people from taking that step? Probably the <laughs> yeah, if they feel that way. I mean, if they're in a place where it's like, yeah, absolutely. I eat, sleep, drink what I create. The, it's the anticipation of being rejected or insulted. That's what stops them. And like, it, I've, I've made this joke back when I made little crafts and potholders and I didn't sell. I actually got a lot more likes on my content. And now that my skills have elevated considerably, there's kind of an attitude of like almost reverse snobbery. Like people will sometimes resent you for professionalizing because they're like, why are you charging so much? It can't be that hard. Or they're like, why are you, why do you have the dream life when I don't have it? So there is a, a possibility of resentment, rejection, and insult. And I think that's really why people won't take that. They don't want to fail. They don't want to be insulted. They don't want to breed resentment. Um, and of course, it's hard to start asking for for funds. Like it's hard to say, yeah. yes, this this um, hour of my time is worth a hundred dollars. Like, yes, I would like you to give me that hundred dollars. Like, it's hard for people to do that. And I respect that. It's still hard for me to do that, and I've been doing it for five years. That was um, ages and ages ago. I I um, professionalized. It's not a craft though. So anyway, um, I did taxes for a while for <laughs> myself, just but just for friends and family and the friends were primarily those who were in craft industries actually because I think that's an underserved an underserved market there's not affordable quality advice necessarily available for people who wish to make a hobby into a and yeah, into an income stream so so I, I did that for a period of time and and it 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 was challenging it was challenging to move to charging and to explain that rate and and to see people who'd been happy to take free advice, not as excited about paying, you know, yeah. a, a low end of the market, but market rate for accounting advice. So it was, it, it was interesting. And as it turns out, I don't eat, sleep and drink accounting. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's my craft that I do that for. So anyway, what kind of challenges do people come up with when they do make the decision to leap in with both or half a foot? <laughs> 
Well, I hate to say it, but there's a lot of bad advice in hobbyist groups, which is probably why I started um, the, you know, started teaching a course because there's, if you go to a hobbyist, I I remember mm, a year ago, I think it was a cloth diaper sewing, um, which is so funny that I still hang out in a cloth diaper like forum because my kids are 18 (laughs) and 20 and none of us wear diapers, but um a gal was saying, I love making these. I want to start a business. Do you have any advice? And I'm not kidding. There were like 25 comments that were telling her, don't bother. It's going to go like, there was not a single encouraging comment by the time I clicked on that. Um, there was a gal who'd had a failed diaper business and she wrote very long comments about why it it won't work. So I would say that I would not encourage you to go to hobbyist groups to get advice on how to start a business. Um, And the other thing, I guess, is uh, some people struggle with like, like, it's like when you give it away, it's priceless. But now if you're going to actually put it on the market, suddenly you're like scared to charge even 10 bucks for it, 15 bucks for it. So I like to use that principle called math. (laughs) This is where I use, you know, you actually put it in a cash (laughs) forecast, like, because that takes the personal stuff out of it. And yeah. You know, I had a guy that wanted me to chain stitch something on the back of his jacket and he asked for a quote and I said, okay, that's, that's a simple thing. $200. He said, well, I can get this on Amazon for 70. I said, great, man. Go do that. (laughs) Because they're not the same thing. And I'm like, okay, like, but, but I'm pretty seasoned now. And so that's, as long as he isn't rude to me, I don't really mind that kind of a transaction, but, but when I was brand new, that would have hurt my feelings. And I would have probably, I would have probably quoted him 50 bucks. Right. So there's some maturity that comes into this and that takes time. So if anyone listening has started a business like this and flubbed, like, please, there's nowhere that supports us on this stuff. Like I had to really scrape together my business education. Cause like you said, for creatives, there's kind of not a lot of resources for building a business. Well, there's a, there's a lot of thought as well, that when you're talking about a home business, that unless your intent is to figure out a way to scale up significantly, that there just isn't, there isn't a market or an ability to be profitable. And I, I know small business people who have made profitable, primarily part-time incomes, but profitable incomes out of their handwork by charging appropriately, increasing prices as necessary, having a professional approach to how they're going to market, who their customer is and all these other things. But it, it, does somehow feel harder. And I, I I do always wonder if part of that is that there's a devaluation based on who the hobby, the gender of the hobby sewist, oh, basically, whether there's I, a, a devaluation there. Um, <laughs> my yes. I So my first college degree, I was one of the first people to come out with a minor in women's studies in the 80s at the school that I went to. And my husband could always tell when I had a new reading assignment <laughs> because because I internalized it quite a lot and then, and then would express <laughs> some, <laughs> some perhaps, some perhaps hostility on the basis of that. Um, so, so the gender, the gender differences have always been interesting to me, but, but as someone who's always appreciated handcraft, you know, it pisses me off a lot, I guess is what I would say. <laughs> I wish, I wish I wasn't still pissed about this, but I am. And so it's like, even though I've made my nut and I'm doing well, I watch my friends go through this kind of devaluation and it makes me furious. I wish I felt less anger because I can feel a lot of anger about it. Um, And it's, it's one thing to tell a crafter 
to get sort of self-empowered and believe in themselves. But there's only so far that can go when you're going to get 20 DMs. How much is this? Why is it that much? Like that wears on any human being. And so culturally we have a problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what are some of the benefits of having a full-time or a side hustle? That's a great question. I would say full-time takes a lot of effort, time, or capital to get going. So full-time is a pretty um, tall order if you're starting from scratch. Side hustle, I love side hustles because I think they're very scalable. Um, As long as you set your infrastructure up correctly and you start to know a little bit about branding um, and messaging and all of those things, a side hustle can become, it did for me, I was doubling my income since I think 2019 um, when I started getting serious. And um, oh, there was something you said about um, barriers to getting started. I guess the biggest benefit for me isn't the money, the income, although like last year I paid off our entire family debt <laughs> through my efforts, which was, I care, we carried that debt for 20 years. Um the biggest benefit for me is actually that I've been able to purchase machines and I've been able to, to tackle projects that I would have never been able to do if I wasn't professional because I would have never been able to scrape that money aside and buy a chain stitch machine, for example. You right. know, in 2020, I bought $10,000 worth of machines. I can't, I would have had to get a bank loan and paid a lot. Like, it would have taken me forever. And I bought it with my own, with my own efforts. And there's also a way that client work for some types of businesses, it can push your skill set. Um, I have the skills I do because I say yes to jobs that are ambitious. And then I figure <laughs> it out. <laughs> um, that said, there's a place for the more kind of mass cottage manufacturer. There's nothing wrong with that either. If you want to sort of churn out hot pants or scrunchy. There's nothing wrong with that. You don't have to be like my stuff's eclectic. It's all over the map. I'm actually making a wrestling singlet here and I've like, and um, coveralls, like I'm making all sorts of goofy stuff, but you don't have to do that. You can build exactly the business you want. I would, I would exhort people to believe that. Yeah. For me, I, the, I, as, as you know, I've, I've been playing with the question of whether or not I want to professionalize some of my hobby. And for me, the the idea of a side hustle that pays for my hobby is really what's mm-hmm. most appealing because I have I have some decent equipment, but there are things that I'd like to have. I um I trade the little bit of work that I do around the sewing industry to buy higher quality fabrics that I want for particular reasons and things like that. Though I haven't I've never settled down to even figure out what it is I might want to do, but it's, but it is the, that idea of being able to, to fund your hobby is a really intriguing one for me as someone who doesn't picture myself doing cottage or even significant custom type things just enough to get me through what it is. I, so that my hobby doesn't cost me. Well, and I think there's another factor we haven't touched on, which is the joy you feel when someone gets something that you made and they love it. They freaking love it. And you've provided that to people with your, I don't know, you call it your closet cleanup. I can't remember what you yeah, call it. Yeah, it's just but. my closet sales. Yeah. And and I agree. I, I find it weirdly satisfying when I get a DM where someone's like, 
oh my gosh, look at this. I'm wearing it. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. And I'm so happy. And I'm like, that's great because it was not bringing me joy that's anymore. Right. So I'm glad it's bringing you joy. And it allowed me to do X by, you know, part of my hearing aids or to, you know, update my glasses or buy more fabric or whatever it is. So it's, it's a mutually beneficial transaction, though it is not professionalizing in the way that I think of it. It's more it but feels the, like it's somewhere in a different space because it kind of is. Yeah. It's but not the, paying for itself, but at least it's improving sustainability because I make so much and having, having a non-donation based second life, because if it goes to a thrift store, it goes to a con, you know, any a consignment shop or something, it, it still has a great chance of ending up ultimately in a landfill. And tragedy, if I'm, yes you know, selling it to someone who has an appreciation for hand-sewn goods, there's a decent chance it'll get some more life at any rate down the road. Absolutely. And like, it is a sort of different space, but that's probably my favorite aspect is that I get to design. I mentally design all day long. It's a lot of pressure on my brain and um, I can make a thing and know it will get worn. I'm not going to wear it. I mean, if you saw my closet, it's like really slender. I like, I have a lot of mental chaos. So I actually dress pretty understated, but boy, do I like to like, I'll be like, I want to make a satin jacket with like, you know, puffed heart, like elbow patches. I'll design this mental thing. And I just want to find a victim, sorry, a client. <laughs> no, yeah. I just want to find a person that really wants it. And so, yeah. you know, that's a little different than this sort of cottage mass production mentality but it's not that much different because most artisans love what they make. And it, you'd probably be, you know, you'd probably think I was pretty silly because I think I was like at least 40 when I realized the things I wanted to sew aren't even things I want to wear. They they aren't. And like, I wish I would have realized that when I was 30 because I would make some cute little pinup dress, take a picture in it, and I would never wear it again. And so today it's like, I'm not going to pretend I'm going to wear it. I'm going to make it for someone else. So that's really helped my mental health a lot, actually. And it's, it's funny that you had mentioned that because I know that, that looking at my feed, you can often see the, the absolute prolific nature of my makes, but there are a number of them where I, where they go straight from the sewing machine to Mm -hmm. my body, to the bag of things I'm going to sell next time, because, because I really enjoyed making it. I may even make three of them, but they aren't right. They aren't for me. They're things that I'm enjoying the process of making. And I, you know, I definitely get a little dopamine hit from every positive comment on, on the photos, but it, but it isn't for me. It's not something I would wear, even if I really, really like it. It's like, you know, it's eight inches shorter than anything I could ever wear out of the house comfortably, (laughs) or it's not the right colors or material for me, but it's so intriguing. I have to make it anyway. Yeah, I mean, that reminds me of like, I love to make lasagna. Nobody in my household eats it, which is weird, but like nobody likes it. But I'll make this big, heavy, expensive, huge pan of lasagna. And I just, I want to make it and I don't have a receptive audience. Um, And like for your closet sales, like you have made some people very, very happy with Mm -hmm. those. And the actual dollar amount is kind of not that relevant. as you know, I also do the tiny horror hug club where I make things for trans yeah. non-binary. And the, I think gift sewing is my favorite type of sewing because it frees me from, I don't have to think about my closet at all. And I can, I'm just unconstrained. And I think actually gift sewing is second only to small child and baby sewing. That is, that is, <laughs> and 
that's that would be really hard to make a good living doing that because people don't want to spend very much money on kids clothes for lots of good reasons right well so the kids clothes thing for me i never got a particularly large amount of joy out of but that's because of something we'll probably cover in a future episode that i was sewing out of necessity because when my children were young it was much cheaper for me to make clothing than it was for me to buy clothing and i did not have the funds to be building wardrobes for my children even at thrift stores, it was better for me to be making it out of um, discarded fabric that I could find in a lot of really inexpensive ways, or even by um, taking clothing that we, my husband and I wore and making it into children's clothing. So it, so somehow that kind of sewing to me always Hmm. felt like a, like a sign of my economic condition instead of a choice I was making, even when I was doing things like smocking and I mean, things that were clearly choices, but it still felt like this was what I was doing because I couldn't, I couldn't do the consumption that would have been associated with a more privileged experience. Anyway, I don't mean to get us off on that because I think Uh, that's going to be an awesome episode. That's going to be a really good episode. I'm looking forward to that too, actually. Um, Yeah, I think, I think like sewing in a way that brings you joy is so important and Mm -hmm. people should dig as deep and as broadly as they can for that. And I wish people didn't feel embarrassed about their sewing quote unquote failures or their missteps or the thing that they thought they wanted to wear and they don't. And I will just say, it's sometimes hard to find someone who appreciates it, which is frustrating because it's like, you've made something wonderful and if it's not valued by another person, that, that actually does usually hurt our feelings. Like that we do need some kind of, you know, validation, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's part of what I was missing in my younger days of sewing is that I didn't, I didn't have a community of sewists of any sort. And, um, my, my family when I was young, wasn't super supportive of my efforts there. My husband is, 99.9% (laughs) behind everything I make with a few notable exceptions. (laughs) And it's nice to have that, but it's also nice to weirdly have the anonymous person I've never heard of on the internet just go, oh, that is so cute. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's definitely a thing that can keep you going. Is there anything else you want to talk about today about hobby sewing? Business sewing, professionalizing. Professionalizing. (laughs) I guess I would just say like, don't bother looking at competitors or who you think a competitor might be like, don't, there's like literally no point because if you want, if you're making something that comes from your brain and your heart and you just like want to make it all day long, it's already unique. (laughs) It is. I guarantee you. So I just, I would just say like, if you're thinking about that step to have hundred thousand percent confidence that you're bringing something very special and unique and I would also discourage you from comparing yourself to other brands because you have no idea what's behind that Instagram profile. You don't know if that person has connections or if that person is leveraged in debt up to the hilt or if they are miserable. Like there is just no point in those kinds of comparisons. And um, yeah, I guess that would be my, my thoughts, closing thoughts on that. I think that's, that's really true. And it's, it's a, for me, the, the big, the big takeaway that I always have to remind myself of is that you, you don't know what someone else is walking. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's really hard to make those comparisons where you don't have that and you'll never have that information, even about somebody who's an intimate friend in your life. You don't have all the information you have parts of it. And so that's, that's that's wonderful. 
Well, this was awesome. I really enjoyed getting to chat with you about this and I look forward to our next foray. I, yeah, I, I love some of the political economic aspects of, of sewing conversation. And I, I, so fair warning audience, (laughs) that's going to be a lot of what's coming up, I would guess. (laughs) <laughs> a lot of kind of rants and then trying to rein it in a little bit, but yeah. we're just going to cannonball into that pool. So we'll, we'll definitely have to have to work on that. Cause I think that both of us may be prone to a little bit of ranting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I kept it pretty chill today. So I'll try to, I'll try to bring that spirit next time as well. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I'm gonna, I'm going to cut the recording at this point, I guess. And we'll figure out if there's a tagline later. <laughs> Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Jenny. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Um, Let's see. How do I stop recording? I think it's this one. The Punk Frackers is created, produced, and edited by Beverly Baptiste and Jenny Hassler. On Instagram, you can find the podcast at Punk Frackers. You can find Jenny at J.O. Hassler and Beverly at Weeds to Wildflowers. Our artwork and music is created and performed by Jim Duran. You can find him on Instagram and his website at jimduran.art.